Our text for today is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, the first chapter. We're going to be kind of going back a little bit. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4 this morning. Then we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. I'll be showing uh, the verses on our screen here this morning. Uh, But as always, I do encourage you, if there is a Bible near you, open up God's Word, open up a Bible. And if you're using one of our church Bibles, the first chapter of Galatians is found on page 972. Page 972, we go to God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you, we rejoice today that you have not remained silent, but that you have spoken to us, to your people throughout all the generations in your holy and your inspired word. Speak to us today. Send your Holy Spirit and write, inscribe your eternal truth and grace deep within our hearts and apply it wherever it is needed today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was almost five hundred years since the writing of the very last book of the Bible and the prophet Malachi to the writing of the very first book of the New Testament that most scholars agree was most probably Paul's letter to the Galatians. It had been almost 500 years between the Testaments. 500 years since Quill or Reed was dipped into the ink and written upon the papyrus, the parchment, writing and inscribing God's holy and inspired word. Almost 500 years had passed, and so we wonder what Holy Spirit would you inspire the Apostle Paul to write after all of that time of silence from you? What words of inspiration, what words of motivation, what words of peace and of joy and of happiness But if you know the opening of the letter to the Galatians, if you were here last week, it is a message of frustration, of indignation, of anger. Paul here is even calling down curses upon people. He uses the word anathema twice in one sentence. Anathema, let's not beat around the bush. It literally means to be cut off eternally from God. He's speaking of damnation upon these people. Why? Is that the message? After 500 years actually paradoxically is all about God's love and about his gospel the gospel of grace alone that was being threatened let's back up just a little bit give you a quick review in 47 or 48 A.D., Paul goes on his first great missionary journey. He goes up to a region. It was an area of the Roman Empire called Galatia. He's planting churches. That's modern-day Turkey. You can kind of see it. It's that yellow place there on the top of the map. 
We don't know how many churches he plants there, but it's several churches in this region of Galatia. It was, again, as a province of the Roman Empire. And literally, it was only months, if not maybe even weeks, after Paul had planted these churches and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ that another group of so-called Christians came along after him and said, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. Yes, Jesus saves you. His death, his resurrection, he is the Messiah. He is the long-sought-after Christ. But it's Jesus plus they taught, they believed, also keeping all of the what's called the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And that means it's Jesus plus, gentlemen, you have to be circumcised. If you want to be a true child of God, a person of God, to please God, you have to be circumcised. All of you, there are certain food you can eat and there are certain food you cannot eat. There are certain ritual purifications and washings and rituals that you have to go through. And there's big festivals and holy days that you have to remember, the Passover and Yom Kippur and the festival of Abu and on and on and on. It was all of this religious activity, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament that they were saying, yes, Jesus saves you, but it's Jesus plus all of this other religious activity. And what they were forgetting, this group, they were known as the Judaizers or the party of the Hebrews that came along after Paul. They were forgetting the entire purpose of this ceremonial law of the Old Testament of circumcision and of the dietary codes and restrictions and all of the ritual washings and purifications and all of those festivals, all of that. Why did God give all of that to his people for all of those thousands of years? It was to keep the Israelites, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people bound together as a distinct group of people. Remember, they were surrounded by all of these pagan nations. All of those religious activities were there to set them apart, to keep them bound together as a distinct family, the people of God. Why? So that one day the Messiah would come. And now that the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus had come, the purpose for all of that ceremonial law was no longer needed. When Paul heard that his message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ alone, was now a message of Jesus Christ plus, Paul says here that it was a reversal of the gospel. Indeed, it was no gospel at all. Anytime you add anything to the gospel, even the tiniest thing to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel of grace. And that is why he's using such strong language. But that begs the question, why don't we take a step back and ask, what is the gospel? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first place? And Paul is showing that to us here in this first chapter. Two things I want us to see this morning. First of all, Paul here in verses 3 and 4 and 5 is giving us a very beautiful summary of the gospel itself. And then secondly, in verses 13 and 14, in part of his sharing of the biography of his own life and this amazing transformation, Paul has shown us the transformative power of the gospel. So it's a summary of the gospel, and then we'll see the transformative power of the gospel for our lives today. Let's dig in, first of all, this summary found in verses 3 and 4, if you're following along. This is what Paul writes. To the churches of Galatia, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This is Paul's summary of the gospel, that we have, you have already been delivered, you have been rescued, you have been saved. And there we see certainly what the gospel is not. The gospel is not the teachings of Christ. The gospel is not trying to follow the ethics of Christ. The gospel is not trying to follow the example of Christ. The gospel isn't the secret wisdom of Christ. The gospel is that Christ has delivered us, saved us, rescued us, rescued you. But even in that, that can be offensive to some people. The fact that you are so, we are so spiritually helpless, spiritually dead in our sins, that we have to actually be rescued. We have to be saved. We have to be delivered. We cannot, in other words, do it on our own. You know, my wife, for Christmas, Imagine if I, she would have given me all these presents for Christmas. I'd open up the first present, and it's a toothbrush. I'd open up a second present, and it's some toothpaste. I'd open up the third present, and it's some mouthwash. And then I'd open up a fourth present, and it's a book on oral hygiene. I might be offended by this message, this problem, this little halitosis situation that she is perhaps suggesting that I might have. See, that might be offensive, that I have that need. We have a desperate need. We cannot do it ourselves, and it means, therefore, we are not in control. We have to be delivered, saved, rescued. What are we delivered from? Paul says, from the present evil age. What's the present evil age? Well, that's the sin in the world, but the sin in our own hearts. It's the evil in the world, but it's the evil in our own hearts. Martin Luther talks about our three great enemies. He says it's the devil and the world and our sinful self. The present evil age is the fallen, broken world in which we live. It is the world of sorrow. It's the world of tears and of grief. It is the world of darkness and evil. It is the world of disease and of death. And here, in the past tense, Paul is saying that you have already been delivered out of and from this present evil age. It is already a reality for you, Christian. Let me show you a picture. This is a photograph. This actually went up for auction. This is a photograph of a radio, a crystal radio cobbled together by an American soldier during World War II while he was in a Nazi prisoner of war camp in Austria. And I think the black case is a uh, soap container of some sort, a Bakelite soap container and found pieces of wire and put this together. Can you even begin to imagine what it would be like to be in a Nazi prisoner of war camp? The hopelessness, 
that might set in the despair, that might set in the darkness and the sorrow of that place. Well, this American GI puts this radio together in the middle of this prisoner camp. And he starts to tune it, and they gather it around together, and they want to hear news. And they hear the BBC broadcast and announce the victory of the Allied troops at the D-Day invasion. And when they heard that news, and then later on the Battle of the Bulge and the victories of the Allied troops, though there were many battles yet to come, yet the war was still not over, though they were still prisoners, they knew that they would be free. They knew that victory was theirs. They knew this news, this information, before even the Nazi guards did. You can only imagine, even though they were still in the midst of a prison camp, the joy and the happiness and the hope that they had. And here, in this summary of the gospel, this is what Paul is saying is our reality. That we have been saved, rescued, delivered from the present evil age. That's good news, the gospel. It's already true for you. The kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet, but the kingdom of God is at hand. And salvation is yours. Now, how does it come? Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. It's Christ. It's the Son of God. It's God himself who gave himself for you. He was beaten punched, whipped, scourged, tortured, nailed to a cross, and then risen three days later. All of that, that was God who did that for you. God gave himself for you. What other religion is crazy enough to say this? None. It is utterly unique, the gospel. I think so many of our friends or people walking in the street, they hear you're a Christian, they think, oh, well, a Christian is someone who follows the ethics of Christ, and they try to follow his example and be a good person. That's not it. I mean, those are fine things, but that's not the gospel. When I was nine years old, my friend had an amazing treehouse, like the kind with like a real door and real windows with real glass, and you could slide them open. And we're playing in his treehouse and running around, and I was inside the house. We're playing tag or whatever, and uh, I reached my hand through the window to kind of grab my friend who was on the outside of the treehouse. And right as I'm reaching my hand through that window, he slides that glass window shut right as my hand and bursts through the glass and slices my arm. It's the worst cut I've had. I still have a scar all these years later. We all have scars growing up, some big, some small. But who would have imagined? Remember Jesus on the, so he rose from the dead and he rose with the marks in his hands and his feet and the wound in his side. John in the book of Revelation receives a vision of Jesus Christ on the throne and he says, I looked and I saw the lamb who was seated on the throne. He's ruling and reigning the entire universe. The lamb seated on the throne looking, quote, as if it had been slain. In other words, God in Jesus Christ still 
bears the marks, the scars, the wounds. Again, what religion, how utterly unique that we worship and serve a God still with wounds and scars. And by his wounds, we, you, are what? You're healed. This is his summary of the gospel. And you can think, well, how does all of this then become mine? I mean, all of this amazing deliverance and salvation and rescue, and he's given himself for me. I mean, how does that actually come into my life? Maybe it's my amazing faith and how strong my faith is. Maybe it's because I come to the 1045 worship service and I'm one of those people I join pastor and I put my hands in the air when I worship. I see some of you. Some of you are like this. And Kendall's up there singing about the Holy Spirit and you're like, I want to. Your arms are sort of surgically attached. It's okay. And you're like. But I'm one of these who goes like this. Oh, I'm one of the good ones. That's why. That's why. Or I'm really moral, or I say all my prayers, or I do all these religious things, and that's what does Paul say? What is it according to? Why does he do this? He says it's according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. It's not for your glory or my glory, it's for his glory. It's according to the will, the sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful will of God the Father. If you're here today and you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have faith in Jesus Christ, that is the work of God, the work of his Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Can we put a little bit more amazing back into grace? It's not a 50, you know, God does 50, but you got to do your 50%. It's not even 99 to 1. God does 99. you got to do your 1%. God does 100% from beginning to end. This is the gospel. And if you add anything to that, it's Jesus plus nothing. So this is Paul's summary. And then, of course, he gives this big defense. We saw a lot of that last week, his defense of the gospel. And then he shares in verses 13 and 14 a little bit of his own story, a little bit of his own conversion. And in that, we see the power of the gospel. So let's look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, For you've heard of my former life, in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God, how? Violently tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I was a zealot, and I was angry, and I was violent. This is who I was before Jesus. We saw in that Acts reading, this description of Paul, he would go into the synagogues and he took men and women and bound them. He took men and women and he beat them. He took men and women, fathers and mothers, and had them executed. This violent man. And maybe we can ask, 
Why would Jesus choose someone like that? Not only to be a Christian, but to be the number one leader of the Christian church who wrote most of the New Testament. Why that man? Well, maybe even in that, don't we see a gospel of grace? And in that, in the story of who Paul used to be in his former life, as you think about your own life, and I know there are people in the room today or at home, and there are things you did, ways you acted maybe years ago that still haunt you. You're still shamed. How can God forgive me? Some of you have these addictions or these recurring sins you keep doing and you keep doing, and Satan, he will entice you to sin, but his main job is to accuse you of your sin and to tear you down. How could God love you and keep forgiving you? Don't you see here in the story of the Apostle Paul, Jesus would say to you today, you are forgiven. There's nothing you could do that would keep you from my love and my grace. There was no one who was so good that they don't need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's no one who is so bad who cannot receive it. It's yours today, it's yours. And finally, the power of the gospel to transform and to change. We see this Let's go back up to verse 10 because we can kind of miss this. I think this is significant. Paul says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What is Paul saying? His former life, he says, I was desperately seeking the approval of others. I was seeking their approval. I was trying to please them. And how often do so many of us, in terms of our identity, this is Paul speaking about his identity and where he was seeking it, how often do we seek our identity in an outward way? Outwardly. You know, maybe historically it was I found my identity outwardly because of my tribe or my nation or my family or my occupation or the relationships that I was in. Some of you maybe are seeking your identity outwardly in how smart you are or how funny you are or how talented you are or how you look. Look, if we base our identity outwardly, say on our profession, our occupation, what we do, and then we lose our job or we have to retire and we don't know who we are anymore. If we base our identity outwardly on a relationship, you know, this is my wife and she's everything to me and then she leaves me. Or if we base our identity outwardly because we're the smart one in the class and then we go to a new school and they're way, everyone else is way smarter. Whatever it is, we need an identity that is more infinitely more durable and more meaningful than just this outward way. Over the last few years, and I won't have time to go into all the reasons philosophically this has happened, but just over the last few years, we've, we've shifted in many ways from this outward way of finding our identity to what? More than inward. 
This is inspirational posters in, in our schools. My daughter has a poster on, on her wall she does th through her middle school that says, you create your own reality. You create yourself. Look inside and discover who you really are and you be you. And now it's not only just look inside and see who you really are because there is no real you because there's nothing really inside there. So you look inside and you create the real you. You are your own God. It sounds liberating. If you think about it for a second. Just by the way, this is kind of the philosophy that's underneath some of the LGBTQ and transgender, all these kind of things that are going on. It, it's this philosophy that says you're your own God, you create yourself, you're in control, you define yourself, you make yourself. And again, that sounds so liberating and wonderful. Look inside yourself, and there's nothing there. You're a biochemical machine. There's a synapses firing and chemical reactions going off, and you exist, and then there's sort of the nothingness, and it's on you to create all of your meaning, all of your worth, all of your value, all of your identity, all of your purpose, and it is all on you. You have to summon it up. Is it any wonder anxiety? You know, last year, the report I just read, the highest number of suicides in the history of this country. We can't find who we are in an outward way, nor can we understand who we are in an inward way. But it comes where? Not outward, inward, but upward. It's what we were made for. It's how we were designed. This is why Paul here is saying, I no longer, I'm set free from having to please other people. How is he set free from having to please other people? Because he knows God, the creator of the universe, is well pleased with him because of Jesus Christ. He's not seeking the approval of others because he has the approval and even the delight of God himself. And that's what you have. That's the only thing durable enough and big enough and most meaningful enough. And that's what we need. We'll close here. Martin Luther is commentarying the Galatians. I love this. He says, the gospel is the central article of the Christian faith. Most necessary is it that we learn it well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. I propose this is the new mission of our Father Lutheran Church. <laughs> Helping ordinary people know and share extraordinary life in Christ by beating it into their heads continually. And that indeed is what we do. That's what we need. Beat it into our heads, down into our hearts. And how can you do that? September the 10th. We've spent years thinking about planning, developing Our Father Faith courses. 12 plus courses you can take over a period of three years. Carefully designed, we're investing a lot of resources, a lot of energy and passion to making these classes the most rich and meaningful and applicable. Ultimately, it's beating the gospel into your heads. September the 10th, in just two weeks, we're gonna start in the fellowship hall. I got space for 170 of you. Upstairs, we have room for 40 of you. 
You got information, hopefully, on your way in. Consider, please, to come at 9.30, an hour before this service, and be a part of this. This is what we need in this ever-changing world. This is what we need uh, for our hearts, for the gospel, to know who we are. Remember those American soldiers gathered around that radio in that prisoner of war camp, and they heard that good news that changed them. This is what we have. It's what we need and what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him alone be what? All the glory.